Welcome to the PaxX Podcast, available on iTunes. This is episode 40 of the show where we talk about everything to do with the passenger experience. I'm Mary Kirby, and I'm joined by my co-host, Max Flight. Max, how are you doing? I'm doing well, Mary, uh, as well as can be expected, given the <laughs> recent political events, but uh, ready to talk PaxX. Uh, moi aussi, Max. <laughs> uh, before we get started, we'd like to thank uh, eGate Solutions for sponsoring this week's podcast. We all want happy passengers. They buy more, and they're likely to be more loyal to your airline. But delivering a positive passenger experience is hard when you're relying on legacy systems and manual processes. eGate Solutions provides the technology behind onboard services, connecting and automating every step of an airline's operations, from the warehouse to the passenger. With eGate, you can spend less time and money on the process and more on up. Opt- Optimizing the passenger experience, which really is what we're all in the business of delivering. Visit eGate Solutions online at www.egate-solutions.com or email them at info at egate-solutions to learn more. Now, it is my great pleasure to introduce our guest today. Chris Kelgard is an aviation and travel industry reporter and editor with more than three decades of experience. In addition to serving as editor of various print and online magazine titles, he has written for dozens of aviation trade and consumer magazines and websites and has been interviewed many times by television, radio, print, and online media on aviation and travel topics. He was among my first influential editors in this business, and he is now a contributing editor at Romy Girl Network. Welcome to the show, Chris. Well, thank you very much, Mary. It's a very great pleasure for me, considering particularly that uh, uh, you and I go back more than 17 years now, and when we first uh, met and started working together uh, in, in aviation, um, we, we, we've managed to retain that enthusiasm for aviation and airlines and the passenger experience for all that time. So uh, it's it's a great pleasure. Oh, thanks, Chris. And Chris, you and I go back, oh, about one day, but it's a, re- it's a real pleasure to be talking with you. Uh, Mary, as you know, Chris knows something about jet engines, and of course, that always thrills me. Oh, yes. I'm excited about this chat. <laughs> All right. Well, we'll get into that. But first, let's look at some of the PaxX stories making headlines. First, the Telegraph reports that some British travelers vowed to boycott travel to the U.S. if Trump were elected. Now that Donald Trump is president-elect, Chris, what are your thoughts on the stability of U.S. tourism? Will it prove to be resilient? Um, Well, I think there are many factors which potentially could um, affect this one way or the other, but there are really quite a lot of potential negatives. Um, As you mentioned, Max, um, there there has been uh, a survey done in the U.K. in the past week by a company called TravelZoo, which... um, uh, surveyed people who might have travelled to the U- uh, USA, and 20% said no, they definitely wouldn't, and another 11% said they'd definitely think twice about it. Um, also, another company in the UK, CheapFlights.co.uk, said that, that they've noticed a, a distinct decline in preference for the US as a destination from uh, UK searchers on their site. Uh, it's fallen by 48% during the course of the election, down to only 52% of the level of searches they were getting. Meanwhile, after the election, the same company, Cheap Flight, uh, said searches on their site for travel to Canada went up 133% overnight compared with a month ago. And and sorry, just to quote another uh, uh, UK company, which uh, is a very well-known market research company, very well-established market research company there, Euromonitor, um, they've issued a report within the past week, which I think is particularly fascinating. It basically says that, you know, if uh, President Trump 
does implement the policies he has talked about in his stump speeches. Um, travel to and from Mexico and the, uh, between Mexico and the USA will likely be impacted in both directions very badly, possibly Central America as well. Also, really potentially from China because uh, Chinese travel is growing, international travel is growing, outbound travel more than in any other country. And if uh, President Trump were to levy tariffs on China, um, uh, Chinese goods, many of those Chinese people who really like to do what's called shopping tourism, they might not come to the USA anymore. Um, and one other thing that, 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 lastly, I mean, I could go on in this vein for hours, to be honest, but um, the um, Euromonitor report cited a, a very well-known think tank here in New York called uh, the Council on Foreign Relations. Council on Foreign Relations recently released an estimate um, that if President Trump were to ban Muslims coming to the United States, that would cost $71 billion annually in lost tourism revenue and lead to the loss of 132,000 jobs. Um, I also imagine personally that if people of who were not purely Caucasian were to come to the USA, they might think twice if they were going to get a really frosty reception at immigration, even if they weren't Muslim. That said, on the other hand, there is one very important factor, and is that, that is if the um, dollar as many economic forecasters and, and financial analysts are, are saying, if the U.S. economy uh, enters recession uh, with a President Trump in power and the dollar continues to fall, then, of course, uh, the USA might become significantly more attractive as a tourism destination because everybody else from other countries would have lots of money to spend here. So... Um, you know, there there are things both ways, but I, I, my, I would tend to lean towards the negative view, I think. So Runway Girl Network obviously has been very, very concerned about the rhetoric uh, that has come out of this uh, election, uh, the anti-gay sentiment, the anti-woman sentiment, anti-Muslim, anti-Mexican. It seems like all marginalized groups uh, got into that fray um, of Trump's ire. So it's been a big concern for us um, because it is certainly something that uh, flies in the face of our ethos. Um, but at the same time, we do need to push forward uh, in this industry, and we are hopeful of positive change despite the election results. And then coupled with the fact that you have an increasing number of states that are now open carry, um, that I think would also be a concern for some of these travelers, um, which you have so much high tensions with respect to you know this election and post-election, and you also have this situation where a lot of people are not accustomed to seeing individuals walking around with semi-automatic weapons on their person. Max, what do you think? Boy, it's sure hard to weigh in on this without <laughs> generating a lot of uh, email. Yeah. Um, I guess right now it's difficult for all of us to separate the campaign rhetoric from the future reality. Uh, right now we just have the the rhetoric to base our projection on what it might actually be like uh, in this country uh, after Trump's inauguration. Uh, I, I think that there might be a significant difference in those two. It's really hard to say. I also wonder about the long-term effect. Uh, this is all on our minds now, and so uh, it's kind of easy to think that the impact might be significant. But uh, the long-term impact, I, I'm just really not sure 
that it's going to be that significant. I mean, when I think about international travel for myself, what do I think about first? If I'm, if I'm looking for a destination, let's say, to go on holiday, first and foremost is my own personal safety and security, right? But there are a lot of other factors. Given that that's okay, there's you know, how expensive is it? What's the destination like? What's the local culture and cuisine like? Uh, how stable uh, is the uh, political environment? Things like this. It's just hard for us right now, I think, to say what it's going to be like. It may not end up being as bad as it sounds. But, hey, I'm an optimist. <laughs> you know, we'll, we'll find out, I guess. Max, from your lips to God's ears. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> All right. Well, why don't we uh, push on to uh, uh, another topic? Uh, again, uh, one of my favorite topics, aircraft engines. Now, Chris, you've written a piece for Runway Girl Network about how CFM International is concentrating on making sure that their newly developed successor to the really legendary CFM 56, that, of course, being the new Leap engine, uh, will it be just as successful? CFMI, of course, is a 50-50 joint venture with GE Aviation and Safran Aircraft Engines. Chris, you interviewed GE Aviation's Leap Manufacturing Program Director, Christina Saida-Holly about the ramp-up following entry into service on the A320neo. So what did you learn about this program that's really quite remarkable? Well, it is remarkable. There's no, there are no two ways about it. I mean, it is the biggest commercial aviation engine production ramp-up in history um, over a relatively short program history so far. CFM International has already obtained orders for uh, and other commitments for 11,500 engines. Um, they are going from essentially building 100 Leap engines this year to uh, building 2,200 by 2020. That is the f- fastest production ramp-up ever for any um, commercial aviation turbofan engine. And it's of a scale that's really unprecedented. It's, uh, uh, I mean, CFM International already holds the record for the most uh, engines produced, commercial turbofan engines produced in a year. From last year, it's going to beat that record this year because it's going to be producing about 1,700 engines in total, 1,600 of which will be CFM 56s. That's going to, picture is going to change completely within four years' time. Uh, as uh, Jamie Jewell, who is CFM's uh, strategic communications director here in uh, the United States, told me recently, um, it took CFM International from 1982 when they delivered the first CFM 56 to 1994 to deliver 5,000 CFM 56s. They're going to, they're aiming to achieve the same delivery target within four years for the leap. Now, that's just one of the aspects. I mean, this lady, Christina uh, Sedaholi, um, is, is, is really managing that whole production ramp-up and it's vast ramp-up. My favorite, I think, fact of course, the Leap engine is an extremely high technology, uh, uses very advanced technologies, as does its competitor, the Pratt & Whitney PW1000G. Um, but not a lot of people know that the Leap, its fan blades are made of carbon fiber, totally carbon fiber. Um, they are very three-dimensional. They are made using a 19th century technology, but it's a 21st century version of a 19th century technology. These carbon fiber fan blades, each carbon fiber fan blade in the Leap engine involves seven miles of carbon fiber filament. 
and it is strong enough to hold, you could hold an A350, an entire Airbus A350 from it without the uh, carbon, the fan blade breaking. And as these fan blades turn, these, these carbon fiber fan blades turn, they've been woven so intricately that uh, CFM has designed them, and this is really the, the, the saffron part of the expertise, so that they actually untwist in set ways during different phases of flight. They change their aerodynamic shape to be optimal for different phases of flight. So um, I think the fact that these there are there are two different um, plants with these gigantic apparently I've never seen one but gigantic jacquard looms from the 19th century weaving these fan blades uh, each 18 and per per leap engine is absolutely fascinating. You know I I, I think it's the single thing that's really along with the fact that um, well CFM through I think particularly Safran. Uh, is uh, possibly GE Aviation 2, is um, using hologrammatic projection of images when in, in assembling the engines to tell the assembly technicians where each part goes. And they're having robots photograph each part of the engine and comparing it with reference images in their database so that uh, they, um, uh, if, if there's something not matching, they, uh, they, they send it to a human inspector to have a look and decide whether it meets the uh, quality assurance standard. So, you know, there's, there's this mix of 19th century technology and absolutely futuristic science fiction going on wow. in, in manufacturing the LEAP engine. That is pretty remarkable, Chris. And, of course, they are enjoying a lot of success also um, as a competitor is is having some difficulty uh, with Pratt & Whitney and the geared turbofan engine. Um, you know, the A320 NEO, uh, you know, it's, a, it's an aircraft that has generated a lot of excitement. Um, and back when the geared turbofan uh, was kind of announced, I remember you know, there was a lot of momentum behind that. But it seems like the momentum has shifted over now to the leap. Do you think that's a fair assessment? Um, well, I think the leap is, you know, the leap is outsold, uh, particularly because um, while the Pratt Whitney PW one thousand G family is on a larger um, spread of aircraft, of course, uh, the leap engine is particularly the sole choice on the Boeing seven three seven Max family, and that's a very, very important uh, factor in the, the the huge sales of this engine. Um, the uh, also it's on so far more than half of the A320s for which A320 Neos for which uh, engine decisions have been announced. The, the leap is one more than half of them, and it's also on the Chinese Comac C919 aircraft, which it's the sole engine choice for that. And, mm. that, and and sales of that aircraft are not inconsiderable. I mean, there's been orders for more than 500 placed so far, all all by Chinese car- uh, carriers and leasing companies. Um, but uh, yes, I mean, both engines will be, I think, extremely successful. My bet is that the Leap engine will ultimately outsell the CFM 56, uh, which, of course, is the world's highest selling uh, turbofan, commercial turbofan engine. As of the end of September, 33,190 CFM 56s had been sold. And CFM's pretty confidently predicting that they'll eventually sell more than 35,000 in total. <laughs> Uh, and they are pretty confidently predicting that the leap will ultimately exceed that figure leap, or, leap orders. I think Pratt and Whitney with the PW1000G could well get to maybe fifteen, twenty thousand in the long run, but I don't think it'll outsell the leap engine. 
Interesting. Uh, similar to the uh, the ramp up that CFMI is experiencing, of course, is the the ramp up at Pratt and Whitney, and uh, these are just huge multiples over historic production rates, especially for for Pratt and Whitney. But there's a number of risks associated with that. Uh, there's supplier risks, supplier yields, manufacturing costs, just meeting the schedule. Uh, these are new engines. Uh, performance to specifications is is a is an area of risk. Of course, that's the effect of that is depending on the the guarantees and the remedies that are in the uh, the contracts with the airlines, um, and design problems that are possibly lurking underneath that are not evident right now. So, it's it's difficult to uh, you know predict the outcome. Almost anything can happen. I mean, we we see what happens with new uh, aircraft. Unexpected mm. things come up, and I'm thinking of uh, battery issues on the 787. Um, mm. We could see the same same kind of thing uh, crop up with uh, with these new engines, either the Pratt & Whitney or the CFM engines. So uh, hopefully that uh, isn't what the future holds. Uh, but uh, again, it's a huge ramp up for both companies, and there are a number of risks associated with that. Yeah. Uh, might I make one more comment? Um, I, I agree with Max. Um, I think the very positive thing from Pratt Whitney's point of view is although there was a highly publicized um, uh, launch customer, Qatar Airways, which, uh, uh, you know, Pratt Whitney had a, uh, an initial slight design problem in that um, its uh, engines were being, on the A320neo, were requiring a protracted startup time uh, because there was some bowing of the, uh, the compressor, uh, compressor stage going on. Uh, and um, so, you know, it was causing a little bit of damage. And, of course, that made Qatar Airways say, you know, very, very uh, tough customer. Uh, we're not going to take some of our aircraft. However, there is no question, nobody's questioned that the uh, PW1000G has gone into service, the 1100G in the case of the A320neo, has gone into service meeting all of its actual fuel burn and thrust performance guarantees. It's, that's pretty much unprecedented, and I believe because of the just because of the complete science, uh, science, excuse me, the complete silence on the uh, the Leap One A um, that it has probably gone into service too, meeting all of its guarantees. These modern engines, which are designed obviously with uh, very advanced uh, computational flow dynamics um, capabilities, um, the manufacturers are getting right absolutely from the outset in terms of their performance. Uh, nowadays, you don't build an engine and then refine it and refine it and refine it to try and get it to the weight and the performance required. You, you start with the performance required and it gets better over time. So um, I think both of those engines have extremely bright feet, uh, futures. Yeah, quite uh, an engineering feat in, in both cases, I think. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, last but not least... Copa Holdings' brand-new Colombian subsidiary, Wingo, is positioning its passenger experience, sales, and ticket distribution strategies to appeal to travelers who it believes, quote, want to enjoy a fresh, friendly, and unpretentious flight experience. Well, Chris, you interviewed the airline's general leader, Catalina Breton, about the carrier's plans. So how is Wingo going to wing its way into the hearts of passengers? Well, it's going to do so, I think. Um, it's a Colombian airline, of course, um, a, a subsidiary of uh, Panama's Copa Holdings, a very successful 
and savvy airline operator, it is going to do so, first of all, by adopting the uh, pretty much standard low-cost carrier model, uh, which is, uh, you know, you have a base fare, which you can basically turn up and not pay much fare and get on. The, there are various ancillary things you can buy on their website, the fees, you know, you can book your seat in advance or you can have extra legroom seats or you can choose to have food and beverages or take a pet on board or take special equipment such as sporting equipment on board. For all of those is an extra cost. I think the thing where Wingo uh, is really going to be differentiated is that it is aiming at a public that hasn't necessarily flown before um, and although it expects to sell most of its tickets through its website, it is also aiming to catch passengers who don't have credit cards or even bank accounts. As a result, Wingo is, um, is with its assistance of the, uh, the U.S. company uh, reservation services provider Radix International, which which is, uh, helped design its system, um, Wingo is offering passengers who book online the capability to go along to any one of more than a thousand stores in Colombia, uh, operated by any one of four chains, to to pay for their tickets in cash. Uh, you know, you book the ticket basically online, you say, I'm going to pay at a store, you go off to the store and you hand over your ticket, they look up the reservation and say, right, the market is paid. So uh, that's one way in which Wingo, I think, will um, uh, really appeal to a, a group of people who... Uh, uh, or, or a new market that has not really had the opportunity to fly before. Another thing I think that will attract passengers to Wingo is that it's actually offering a pretty generous carry-on allowance, unlike airlines such as uh, Spirit Airlines here in the United States, which want to charge you for even your carry-on bags. Um, Wingo is offering you, you know, first of all, a carry-on bag, free carry-on bag of up to 10 kilograms in weight, plus a personal item of up to 6 kilograms in weight. That's 16 kilograms. 16 kilograms is more than 35 pounds. And I think personally, as long as I didn't take a big, really big heavy computer along, that uh, I could possibly pack for four or five to seven, even a week's stay uh, in 35 pounds. So um, I, I think Wingo will be popular both from the point of view of its low fares, its ancillary revenue model, uh, its generous carry-on policy. And also the uh, Catalina Breton was was very uh, pains to tell me that her title of the airline is general leader, and she said they really don't want to come across as having a hierarchical structure. They want everything to be fun and friendly and unpretentious and um, let the customers see that the people are enjoying working for the airline. You know, there's an airline that's done that here for many years very, very successfully, probably the world's most successful airline ever, and that's Southwest Airlines. Um, so if... Wingo can emulate that to any extent at all, then it should be very successful. Yeah, this uh, it, it's quite exciting. I have to say, Chris, I, I'd be remiss if I didn't mention that both of these articles that you've penned for Runway Girl Network included, obviously, interviews with um, high-level executive women in the industry, which is just so wonderful and edifying on so many other levels. So, um, But with very specific regard to Wingo um, and the passenger experience, it does sound like uh, quite an operation that's been set up in, in partnership with, with Radix um, and, and really going to open up travel to... Uh, 
many people. Um, the 737, uh, when it is configured in a, in a rather tight way, can be a bit uncomfortable because the width of the seat, of course, is around 17 inches compared to, say, the A320, which is 18 inches. But for the kind of demographic, do you think that this will be the comfort level that will be accepted, do you think? Or um, do you think that seat pitch would be even an issue um, for a carrier like Wingo? Um, I think it might be except that, I mean, there's no question, Wingo is offering actually some of its seats on its 737s, each of its 737-700s is going to fly with 142 passengers or seats, passenger seats. And yeah. that's quite a lot, considering particularly that some of those seats are going to be extra legroom seats. It right. does really imply that the seat pitch uh, throughout the rest of the uh, cabin it's an all-economy cabin, but except that there's some extra legroom seats. I don't quite know how many, unfortunately. But um, the seat pitch will be pretty tight. My guess is that they'll get a lot of young people flying them and a lot of first-time flyers. So, um, you know, it's a difficult question to answer because I think those people will have no expectations. If, they're young, if, they're, if they tend to be carrying a lot of young people, then I think there won't be much of a problem. Wingo has said that it does want to cater to business people as well, and it can't necessarily, uh, you know, afford the airfares to to travel internationally. It's traveling to, I think, ten countries. Uh, Wingo, um, I, I don't know so much about that, to be honest. That, that that they will be very attractive to the business person because, let's face it, a lot of business people um, are are middle aged and not slim, you know, um, yeah. and probably don't like something like what sounds like it might be a. 28 or 29 inch seat pitch. The four uh, Boeing 737-700s that they're going to operate, uh, they're not new aircraft. I think they're around 17 years old, perhaps, but the cabins have been retrofitted, right? Those are new seats? Yes, yes, they are. They're they're new seats provided by a company here called uh, Heiko Cabin Solutions, um, and they uh, are based in uh, North Carolina. They have a new line of seats called the Vector Seating. Um, now, I'm not really expert on this, and, and Haeco Cabin Solutions has not talked about it very much, but I, I do believe that the Vector seat that they are providing for um, Wingo, and they've done the reconfiguration, they've obtained the supplemental type certificate, they've actually done the installations. Um, it's all been a turnkey service for Wingo, and, and Haeco Cabin Solutions did it within a three-month period of time from Wingo placing the order to getting the aircraft delivered. Heiko um, has not said much about the seats, but they are different. It's very pretty clear that they are different. It's a single cab, uh, single aisle, basically short haul seat that they're provided. Wingo um, Heiko Cabin Solutions' first vector customer it was Cathay Pacific Airways, which has announced it's going to have a, a, a long haul version of the vector economy seat, and it's. Uh, Airbus A350-1000s. Now, Heiko Cabin Solutions has described that to me as a fully featured seat. So I'm guessing there are quite substantial differences between the uh, seat that's going to be on the Cathay Pacific aircraft for long-haul economy and the um, Wingo aircraft, even though I think some of the Wingo sectors are going to be up to five hours in duration. Interesting. Well, we uh, look forward to kind of seeing how how they take off. Really, um, it it is exciting to see startup carriers around the world. Most of them, of course, are in the low cost or 
ultra low cost carrot uh, category, it would seem, um, which kind of does beg questions from a passenger experience standpoint. But we're also seeing a lot of these legacy carriers go rather tight in economy class, something that myself and Max talk about all the time. And I do wonder if we're almost seeing a kind of a blending now of the model where you, you almost can't even describe an airline as, as legacy versus low cost sometimes if, if, a, if a carrier is doing 10 abreast on a 777 uh, with less than 17 inches, you know, or, or thereabouts. Um, with I, It does beg that question of what, what's happening with the models. And the unbundling, of course, of all these products. Yeah, well, British Airways is a good example. Recently, they tried to persuade uh, people uh, in, the, in the UK that it was really passenger preference that uh, they were going to stop offering free food and beverage and long-haul flights, excuse me, short-haul flights, and instead they were going to sell stuff um, food and beverage from Marks and Spencers, which is a very, very good, uh, you know, upmarket supermarket chain in the UK. But uh, charging uh, three pounds for a cup of tea, uh, which is more than Ryanair and EasyJet do, I, I, I don't think too many passengers, uh, BA passengers, were fooled by BA's uh, spin on that uh, decision to uh, start charging passengers on short haul flights for their uh, for their food and drink. No, no. And of course, there was a lot of outrage on social media when those announcements were made, especially about the removal of the cherished cuppa uh, on board. Um, so, but this has been fascinating, uh, Chris. I really do appreciate you joining us. We're unfortunately rapidly coming to a close. I want to thank our listeners. And remember, you can find us online at runwaygirlnetwork.com and on iTunes. Be sure to follow all the Runway Girl Network activity on Twitter at at runwaygirl. And remember to use the PacSex hashtag when tweeting about the passenger experience. Join in the conversation. We'd love to have you. I'd like to reiterate our thanks to our sponsor, eGate Solutions. And I'd like to thank Chris for being our guest. Chris, where can listeners find you at? Well, my personal Twitter handle is at Chris Kelgard, and my last name is spelled K-J-E-L-G-A-A-R-D. Uh, I also run a fairly well-known uh, Facebook page, Airlines and Destinations, where uh, I always provide links to the uh, stories that Mary's, of mine that Mary's publishes. So uh, we have quite a few followers on that Facebook page. So uh, those are the best two places to get me uh, on social media. Thank you. All right, Chris, it's been a real pleasure, and we want to ask that all of you join us again next time as we talk about the passenger experience on the PaxX Podcast. Take care, everyone. Mm-hmm.